Hello, I'm James Holland and welcome to Chalk Valley History Hit. Now, Neil Ferguson is one of our most brilliant and incisive historians and one of our very few truly world-renowned historians too. Ferociously clever, never afraid of controversy, everything he writes and says is always just so fascinating and thought-provoking. He's also a big believer that everyone should study history and frankly, amen to that and is now trying to bring what he calls applied history to other subjects, whether it be politics or economics. Politicians especially, he believes, have a duty to learn about the past. Well, I for one am in complete agreement on that. This talk was recorded at the 2016 Chalk Valley History Festival, just a few days after the Brexit vote here in the UK, and I think it's fair to say that Neil was just a little bit upset about the result. What he gave, though, was a typically brilliant talk, full of wit, wisdom and insight about one of the great political figures of the 20th century and beyond, Henry Kissinger. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I uh, have never lectured in wellies before, uh, least of all uh, in wellies that are two sizes uh, too big. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a challenge. Uh, because one, one struggles to take oneself seriously at the best of times. Uh, at, at this particular time, it, it seems especially hard. Henry Kissinger famously asked the question, Who do I call if I want to talk to Europe? <laughs> now, Henry Kissinger is asking the question, Who do I call if I want to talk to Britain? <laughs> who, who indeed? Do you call David Cameron, who has resigned as Prime Minister but is Prime Minister? Uh, do you call one of the five candidates to succeed him? You certainly don't call Boris anymore. <laughs> so do you call Machiavel Gove, as we must learn to call him? Never trust a Scotsman. <laughs> or do you call Sir Francis Urquhart Osborn, who couldn't possibly comment on today's unfortunate events? I am here to talk to you about one of the great masters of statecraft, Henry Kissinger. And I'm going to do that. And then, doubtless, you'll ask me questions about Brexit, just in the same way as in the United States, when I give a talk about Henry Kissinger, they ask me questions about Donald Trump. I want to tell you about how I met Henry Kissinger, because it actually happened in, in London. I was at a, a drinks party, and there was the legendary Dr. Kissinger. And he, he did something which I highly recommend you do if you want to put an academic at his or her ease. This could be useful for the organizers of this festival. <laughs> you say, as he said to me, I've read one of your books. <laughs> now, that is what every young academic wants to hear. I've read one of your books. And we began to talk about that book, which was a book about the First World War, The Pity of War. And we were three minutes into an intense conversation about the origins of the First World War, when suddenly, <laughs> he disappeared. In Harry Potter terms, he disapparated. And he reappeared on the other side of the room, just where Jane is sitting, that far away, standing next to the supermodel, Elle McPherson. <laughs> and I, I can remember thinking, I can learn from this man. <laughs> we, we corresponded. And the idea came up in the correspondence that I might write his biography. And at first, I said no. 
Let me tell you why I said no. For two reasons. First, I knew that it would be an enormous amount of work because really few administrations in the history of the United States have been more thoroughly documented than the Nixon administration. You have everything, every phone call. But then, secondly, there was the thought of Christopher Hitchens's review. <laughs> so I, I'll never know what Chris Hitchens would have said of this book. I, I have this fantasy that if he was still here, he would have given it a positive review to annoy his left-wing friends. But we can't be sure. So I said no. And I want to illustrate. I'm going to quote a few Kissinger documents. I'm an old-fashioned historian. Um, mud, is, mud is a different substance from the one that historians are used to because historians specialize in dust. Uh, but, you know, mud is just dust with water. Dust is what documents accumulate. It's actually a dreadful profession for an asthmatic, as I am. But I realized that too late. And in order to convey to a serious history festival what it is that we do, I am bound to quote from dusty documents. Let me begin with one that wasn't dusty. It was a freshly minted letter from Henry Kissinger. Uh, this is a, more than 10 years ago. This thing took forever to write. I won't do the voice anymore. Uh, what a pity, he wrote. I received your letter just as I was hunting for your telephone number to tell you of the discovery of files I thought had been lost. 145 boxes <laughs> which had been placed in a repository in Connecticut by a groundkeeper who has since died. These contain all my files, writings, letters, sporadic diaries, together with some 20 boxes of private correspondence from my government service. Be that as it may, our conversations had given me the confidence, after admittedly some hesitation, that you would have done a definitive, if not necessarily positive, evaluation. I don't know if any of you fish, but if you fish for trout, it's very important that the fly should land in just the right way on the water so that the trout should be fooled. Well, Henry Kissinger knows how to cast a fly, and that letter landed just on the surface of the water, and I, like a trout, swam up and bit. I couldn't resist the thought of 145 boxes. <laughs> That's what it's 145 boxes. Two weeks later, I was sitting in uh, his home in Connecticut looking at the contents of those boxes. And as soon as I did that, Almost within a few hours, I realized I had to write the book. And let me try and explain to you why the, the contents of the boxes were so arresting. We all have uh, in our minds some notion of, of Henry Kissinger, whether it's the super K of the early 1970s magazine covers or the Dr. Evil figure that Chris Hitchens wrote about in the 1990s. But neither of these characters is a real person. One is a superhero and one is an arch-villain. But as soon as I started reading the letters and the diaries in those boxes, immediately I encountered a real person. A young man who'd been born in South Germany in 1923, who wasn't yet 10 when Adolf Hitler came to power. A teenager who became a refugee. We talk all the time about refugees these days. Well, in those days, the refugees were from Germany, not to Germany. At the age of 15, Henry Kissinger arrived in New York City with his parents and his brother Walter and some furniture. That was all they had. That was all the Nazis let them take. And this young man had to become a worker. He worked in a shaving brush factory in Manhattan and studied nights. And then, just a few years later, this young Heinz Kissinger, as he had been, was Henry Kissinger, drafted into the US infantry and sent to Europe. 
Imagine, put yourself in the position of a refugee who had arrived in, in the United States in 1938 from Germany and who six years later was back in Germany in a US Army uniform. Let me quote from a letter that he wrote to his parents in November 1944. In English, by the way. It is very late and I haven't much time, but I must write a letter just so that I can affix to it the legend somewhere in Germany. So I have made it. Out in the darkness that envelops this town, rows and rows of shattered buildings line the roads. People wander through the ruins. War has come to Germany. So I am back where I wanted to be. I think of the cruelty and barbarism those people out there in the ruins showed when they were on top. And then I feel proud and happy to be able to enter here as a free American soldier. Those of us who write history books for a living spend a lot of time reading very, very boring documents. If you're considering this as a career, I want to emphasize that in order to find that, I went through something like 35,000 pages of documents from over 100 archives. Most of what you read as a historian is spectacularly boring. You're, you're like a prospector for gold. And you have to read the boring stuff because you have to grasp the essential dullness of most of human life. Only occasionally do exciting things happen, only occasionally do people write self-revelatory letters? But as an historian, you keep on reading and turning the damn dusty pages in the hope, and in this case, it soon became an expectation, that you will find gold. There was more. Just six months later, Kissinger, who had survived a very harrowing experience at the Battle of the Bulge, was back in Germany, outside Hanover, and he and his comrades stumbled upon a concentration camp, the camp at Arlem. Kissinger was devastated by what he saw, as his comrades were too. But as a German Jew, I think the feeling was especially shocking. Afterwards, he wrote an essay, a short two-page essay, entitled The Eternal Jew. And I'm going to quote briefly from that, too, because this was one of the documents that convinced me to write the book. It's addressed to one of the inmates of the camp. Folek Sama Kissinger wrote, Humanity stands accused in you. I, Joe Smith, human dignity, everybody has failed you. You should be preserved in cement up here on the hillside for future generations to look upon and take stock. Human dignity, objective values, have stopped at this barbed wire. As long as conscience exists as a conception in this world, you will personify it. Nothing done for you will ever restore you. You are eternal in this respect. Now, there are some people who think that I subtitled the first volume of this two-volume biography, The Idealist, in order to outrage readers of The Guardian newspaper. And it is true that that crossed my mind, though it was mainly the New York Times reader I was going for. But the subtitle as a description of the first half of Henry Kissinger's life, and this is almost exactly half, stops at the end of 1968, is, I think, more than a provocation. It is designed to persuade you, the reader, that we should not think of Henry Kissinger as the arch-realist, as a follower of Machiavelli, much less of Metternich or, or Bismarck, although he wrote about both Metternich and Bismarck. What I try to show in the book is that partly because of his experiences as a young man, Kissinger was a genuine idealist in at least three different ways. 
The first, I think, had to do with the experience of the 1930s. I want to talk a little bit about this. Because when all is said and done, we're living through a version of the Munich moment. People, I think, don't fully appreciate the significance of what is happening in this country now. There's a lot of tosh written about the revolt against the elites. It's rubbish. The significance of Brexit is the division of the elites. The real story here is a fundamental division within Britain's elite. Just as was true at the time of Munich in 1938, and would be true again during the Suez Crisis. This is our Suez Crisis. Henry Kissinger's life was upended by the failure of appeasement. It was the failure of appeasement that doomed so many members of his family, at least 13, to death. Because the Kissingers that did not get out of Germany as he was able to died in the Holocaust. And the Holocaust was made possible by World War II. In a 1957 interview, Kissinger says something very interesting. And I quote, We like to smile now at Baldwin and Chamberlain in 1938, but they thought of themselves as tough realists. That was not intended as a compliment. Secondly, when Kissinger returned from Germany, and he stayed longer than he needed to because he, along with a number of his comrades, passionately believed they had to do what they could to prevent it all happening again, in 1947, when he returned to Harvard, he became an idealist in a second sense. And that second sense was philosophical. I don't know if there are any academics apart from me here tonight. Any academics here? Don't be ashamed. It's not as bad as being a politician. Sir, there are times, are there not, when the undergraduate arrives in one's study at an inopportune moment. Henry Kissinger arrived in the study of William Yandel Elliot and said, I am your new tutee at some point in late 1947. And Elliot replied, Elliot was a southerner, a rather bombastic figure in the government department. Elliot replied, come back when you have read the complete works of Immanuel Kant. In 99% of all known cases, you never see the undergraduate again if you say those words. <laughs> Kissinger was the 1%. He went off and he read the complete works of Immanuel Kant, and then he wrote the longest senior thesis in the history of Harvard University with the modest, perhaps rather too narrow, title of The Meaning of History. <laughs> and if one reads The Meaning of History, it's pretty hard to read. If one reads it, one realizes that he had become a philosophical idealist, partly under Eliot's influence. Kissinger, in his early work, affirms the fundamental ideals uh, of Kantian philosophy. And then, in a third sense, Kissinger becomes an idealist. And that is when he begins to apply what he's learned as an undergraduate to history itself. He goes from being a philosopher to being an historian. This is another reason I wrote the book. There are not many historians who go into political life and fundamentally change the world. Kissinger's one of them. As an historian, Kissinger always applied the principle that ideas are more powerful than material forces. Everybody in the late 1940s and early 1950s in the United States had a fundamentally materialist bent. They thought that the Cold War was going to be a struggle between two economic systems, capitalist and communist. There were systems theorists and political scientists and macroeconomists, but the common factor was economics dominated. Kissinger dissented from that view and argued from the outset that the Cold War was fundamentally a contest between ideals, the ideal of freedom on one side and that of unfreedom, of totalitarianism, on the other. So when I call him an idealist in the first half of his life, it's not just a provocation. I think it captures the reality of the man. 
Let me illustrate the point with another quotation. In July 1958, Kissinger went on TV. It's always a strange moment when a historian or an academic goes on television. Kissinger had first been on TV in 1957, the year before, because he'd written a bestseller. His first book had been an epic fail commercially. He couldn't actually get his book on the Congress of Vienna published in the United States. This was his doctoral dissertation about early 19th century diplomatic history in Europe. No American publisher would touch it. Do you know who published it? The late, lamented, and wonderful George Weidenfeld, whose memorial service I failed to attend on Sunday to my eternal shame. George published it, and it was a labor of love because it didn't sell, and the second and third volumes that Kissinger had promised were never written. The reason George signed Kissinger up was that Kissinger promised he was going to write a trilogy, the first on the Congress of Vienna, the second on the unification of Germany, and the third on the origins of World War I. I can imagine George's eyes lighting up at the thought of this trilogy by a brilliant young German-Jewish scholar. But Kissinger never wrote the other two volumes. The bestseller wasn't even published by George. It was published in the United States by the Council on Foreign Relations with the title Nuclear Weapons and Foreign Policy. That was what made Kissinger famous. By 1958, he was a media don, as we would say in this country or as Americans say, and I prefer this term, a public intellectual. I always think of public convenience whenever anybody refers to me as a public intellectual. And indeed, public intellectuals and con public conveniences have a great deal in common. You'll, you'll know this if you're on Twitter. In the 1958 interview, Mike Wallace was the interviewer. And at one point, Kissinger said, and I quote, I think we should go on the spiritual offensive in the world. We should identify ourselves with the revolution. We should say that freedom, if it is liberated, can achieve many things. Even when we've engaged in constructive steps, we've always justified them on the basis of a communist threat. Very rarely on the basis of things we wanted to do because of our intrinsic dynamism. We should have said, these are the things we want to do because of the values we stand for, not because we want to beat the communists. Now, there is the authentic voice of the idealist. Throughout the 1950s, Kissinger was highly critical of the Eisenhower administration for its lack of idealism, for its tendency simply to try to match Soviet moves. When I read those lines, I remember thinking, yes, I'm right about this. He was the idealist. On key issues, his criticisms of American administrations were not the criticisms of a hard-nosed realist asking only about the national interest. On the contrary, they were the criticisms of an idealist. Let me give you an example. Kissinger was briefly a consultant to the Kennedy administration. It went horribly wrong. He was rather screwed over by the national security advisor, McGeorge Bundy. And so Kissinger became a kind of insider-outsider. He knew a little bit about how the administration ran, but he was jilted and disappointed in what had happened. At the time that Kennedy, or at least his administration, ordered a coup d'etat in Saigon in South Vietnam, the overthrow of the Diem regime, a very bloody episode because both Diem and his brother were murdered by those perpetrating the coup, Kissinger wrote an extraordinarily critical piece that he wanted Nelson Rockefeller uh, to deliver in a speech. Now, some of you are sitting there going, what is he talking about? This is all ancient history. And it's true that I'm taking you back to a time very different from our own. This was a time when a multimillionaire who was not terribly literate 
and who had a very checkered marital history, could seriously imagine becoming the Republican nominee for the US presidency. I, I know it seems far-fetched, doesn't it? Sometimes history just is another country. Oh, wait. Nelson Rockefeller was, of course, a far more sophisticated and admirable man than Donald Trump. But it was Rockefeller that Kissinger supported through thick and thin, through three election cycles, as his principal foreign policy advisor. Nelson Rockefeller, who never even got the nomination, who never even got that far, much less the presidency. So what does Kissinger say in November 1963? And I quote, no American can take pride that our government should have been associated with events leading to the assassination of two leaders with whom we are formally allied. I do not like our country to be thought of in terms of the cynical use of power. Our strength is principle, not manipulativeness. That's Henry Kissinger right there. Our historical role has been to identify ourselves with the ideals and deepest hopes of mankind. If we lose this asset, temporary successes will be meaningless. That is not the language of a foreign policy realist. Quite the contrary. And Kissinger had used similar language criticizing the Kennedy administration in 1961 at the time of the Berlin crisis. Remember when John F. Kennedy said that a wall was a damn sight better than a war. Kissinger disagreed and regarded the building of the Berlin Wall as a tragic failure of US foreign policy. So this is a book with a, an argument. I think it's also a book that tells you a good deal about his times as well as his life. But like all good history books, it is also a whodunit because it ends with a puzzle, with a mystery. And the mystery, which is what I'll conclude with, and then we can talk about Brexit. The mystery is why Richard M. Nixon, the most cynical realist in the history of the presidency, chose Henry A. Kissinger to be his national security advisor. It's profoundly mysterious because time and again, Kissinger had criticized Nixon, who was, of course, Nelson Rockefeller's arch rival again and again and again. There was no love lost between them. When Nixon, in 1960, reached out to Kissinger to seek his advice on a specific security question, Kissinger was so determined to avoid taking the meeting that he claimed to be going to Japan on the date in question. Now, I'm always making excuses to people to avoid things. That's, that's, that's what I do every day. But to say you're going to Japan is extreme. That's like that, my favorite New Yorker cartoon, the best ever New Yorker cartoon. Do you know it? The, the guy is in the office on the telephone. And it's obviously the New York office. And he's, he's saying, no, I can't do Thursday. How about never? Could you do never? <laughs> There's not a day when I don't think of that cartoon. Well, essentially, Kissinger said to Nixon, how about never? Could you do never? And I was really disappointed because I thought I was going to show that there was a backstory, that the reason that Kissinger got the job of national security advisor at the end of 1968 was that there was a backstory. They'd met before. They had a relationship. Something. No. They never met. Kissinger avoided Nixon. They didn't actually meet until the very end of 1967, almost a year before Nixon amazed everybody by appointing Kissinger national security advisor. So there's a funny answer to the whodunit question, which I'm going to tell you now which uh, was given to me by a man named Guido Goldman, who was Henry Kissinger's longest-serving PhD student. And Guido, Guido's answer to the question, why did Nixon give Kissinger the job, was this, that Henry Kissinger was the only thing of Nelson's that Richard Nixon could afford. <laughs> <laughs> 
which is funny but not true. Certainly not the answer. Actually, to get the answer, you have to read the book. <laughs> there has to be some compensation for walking up and down in outsized Wellington boots covered in mud. But part of the reason lies in the events of that December 1967 evening. Because Nixon and Kissinger first met at a drinks party. And they both arrived early. So there was a rather awkward moment. Normally, Richard Nixon was the most socially graceless person in any room. But on this occasion, he was the one that came to the rescue of the situation. And do you know what he said to Henry Kissinger that night? He said the following all-important words. Professor, I've read one of your books. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. So we now have 23 minutes to talk about Brexit, uh, or Donald Trump, or, or the football. Um, as a Scotsman, I'm delight, delighted to talk about football with an English audience. <clears throat> please raise a hand. There's a hand right there, and, and there's a microphone too. Yes, please. Would you um, like to comment on um, Kissinger's involvement with Vietnam, please? Mm. Gladly. I should explain that anything I say about the period after 1968 uh, should not be held against me, as uh, that is still work in progress. And I don't really make up my mind about things until I've been through the documents a couple of times. So my, my answer is going to be partly conjectural. In volume one, I think I show convincingly that that Kissinger saw as early as 1963 that things were going wrong, hence the critique of the Diem assassination. His point then was, if you broke it, you own it. Uh, if, you, if you overthrow the government in Saigon, you end up owning the South Vietnamese uh, regime. But in 1965, he went uh, much further by actually going to Vietnam. Now, Kissinger, remember, was a, a Europeanist. His expertise was in Europe, but he knew Asia somewhat. I mean, he'd spent time in Japan. He'd spent time in uh, South Korea at the time of the Korean War. So he wasn't completely unfamiliar with Asia, but he'd never been to Southeast Asia. So unlike many academics, most academics like to sit in an armchair pontificating about countries they've never been to. Kissinger said, I'll go. This is obviously important. And he went as a, really as, a, as an advisor to the then US ambassador in Saigon. And he spent weeks traveling around South Vietnam, took a good deal of risk. He went up to the front line. He visited CIA and special forces out, outposts. And he wrote a, an extraordinary report about that visit. And the report essentially said this is all going horribly wrong in two ways. One, the US military is a bureaucratic disaster of competing agencies that have no coherent strategy. Two, the South Vietnamese government is horribly and probably unsalvageably corrupt and divided. Therefore, we cannot win militarily. Therefore, there needs to be a diplomatic solution to this problem. It's a seminal moment in his career, uh, as I show in the book, this 1965 visit. And he goes again in 66 and again uh, is, is disappointed and indeed dismayed by what he sees. In 1967, Kissinger was involved in an ultimately abortive attempt to start talks between the United States and North Vietnam. Uh, this was a back, one of many back-channel attempts by the Johnson administration to begin some kind of diplom diplomatic solution, but it came to nothing uh, in 67. And, uh, by 68, when there actually were official talks in, in Paris, uh, it was clear that this was going to be incredibly difficult for the very simple reason that the North Vietnamese thought they were going to win the war and therefore had no great incentive to cut a deal with the United States that would be considered 
respectable or honorable in the US. In volume two, I'm going to show the incredibly long road that Kissinger had to walk from the beginning of 1969 all the way to the fall of Saigon in 1975 to try to find a solution to a problem that he had already identified 10 years before the fall of Saigon. And the key question for volume two will be, how far was the strategy, for example, the bombing of Cambodia, Kissinger's, and how far was it Nixon's, or for that matter, the strategy of other members of the administration? For the answer to that, you'll have to wait for volume two, which will take me about three years. Thanks. Other questions? There are some arms of, of aloft here, two in fact, and, and there's a third there. But perhaps if, if we pass the microphone along to the gentleman in the blue, and there's a man behind him in, in a sort of crimson v-neck. This is a totally random process, which I will try to make unrandom as best I can. Yes, sir. Could you please comment on Kissinger's uh, idealism as regards the state of Israel? Mm. Such an interesting subject. Kissinger's family uh, was an orthodox family. He grew up in Furt in Franconia, uh, and his, his family belonged to one of the orthodox uh, shuls uh, in that town. The orthodox position was that the creation of a Jewish state was a blasphemous uh, proposition. And the very first piece of political writing by Henry Kissinger that I was able to find uh, is a short statement on the issue uh, of Palestine uh, from, I think, 1936 or 37, in which he makes it clear that he's hostile to the idea of a secular Jewish state. The issue kind of vanishes in his life. From then until 1968, Kissinger hardly ever writes about Israel. He occasionally writes about the Middle East, but usually it's Iraq, uh, the aftermath of the Suez Crisis. He rarely comments on Israel. And this was a mystery to me, particularly by the time you get to 1967. Where's, where's Kissinger's view on this? And I came to realize that this was a deliberate act of abstention on his part. He went to Israel. It turns out that he went there more than once. But unlike all his other visits and trips, he wrote no memoranda that have survived. I've only been able to find out about these visits because a few photographs survived in his personal papers. And then an, an uh, elderly Israeli diplomat who was involved was able to confirm what happened. So there's a puzzle, and that's the puzzle of his, his silence. And that silence was in some measure perpetuated because Nixon felt that a Jew could not play an objective part in Middle Eastern diplomacy. So for the first couple of years of the Nixon administration, they're trying to keep Kissinger out. As you know, uh, it proved impossible uh, because of Kissinger's proximity to Nixon and obvious mastery of uh, strategic questions. So that by 1973, this man who had been all but silent on the subject in the first half of his life is the peacemaker who successfully exploits the surprise of the Yom Kippur War to establish a, an enduring balance, as it proved, between Israel and the Arabs, particularly by exploiting Egypt's weakness in 73. It's an extraordinary story. In writing volume two, I'll be trying to show what it was that Kissinger was thinking all that time that he was silent and trying to answer the question that Israelis often asked, can we trust him, since he's not a Zionist? And I think Kissinger became a Zionist by experience, against really his education. Thanks. The gentleman behind you, yes. Um, first of all, I've read quite a few of your books. <laughs> That's what we really like to hear. Uh, the, the, the second point, um, which you, is a quick one, have you come up with a subtitle for your second volume? Yes. <laughs> we're, we're, we're not going to know it yet, are we? I'll, I'll tell you uh, the provisional subtitle, because uh, it was my wife's idea. My wife is a wonderful woman, much more wonderful than me, Ayan Hersi Ali. And she patiently has sat through many a talk on this subject by me. 
On the night of the launch of this book in New York, I gave a short interview, I think, with Charlie Rose. And in the course of that interview, I used a phrase, casually without really thinking, that she picked up on. And she came up afterwards and said, that's what you should call volume two. And I said, what? She said, the realm of power. And the realm of power is the perfect subtitle because it captures the fact that in volume one, he's mainly an academic. You can be an idealist in your study. I've tried it. But when you enter the realm of power, everything changes, not the least of which is your own importance. I find in my study I'm terribly important. <laughs> when you're in the, the situation room or the Oval Office, when you're sitting with the President of the United States, you're not important. And I want to capture in volume two the fundamental transformation that occurs when he enters the realm of power without much power of his own. In January 1969, Henry Kissinger was not an important person. Most people assumed he was Nixon's cipher, who'd been hired precisely because he was an academic and therefore would be easy to shove around. It was only gradually that Kissinger became an effective player in the realm of power. And not really until 72, 73 was it clear that he, more than anyone else, was the architect of strategy an equal partner with Nixon and ultimately superior to Nixon as a result of Nixon's collapse during Watergate. So for now, I think I'm going to call it the realm of power. It's always a good idea to take your wife's suggestions. Um, can I just ask you uh, what you feel about uh, Henry Kissinger's view his book World Order and his reminding us of all, us all of the importance of the Westphalian Treaty of 1648 in relation to sovereignty. Yes. And it would be really helpful if you could just give us your views of what Henry would think, because I thought it was the most insightful book I've read in years and very helpful. World Order is a tremendous piece of work. Uh, it would be a tremendous piece of work for a man in his 30s or 40s, for a man in his 90s. It's extraordinary. And it's fascinating to me because it recapitulates ideas from his early career, particularly from that first book that George Weidenfeld published, which was in many ways the, the first statement of, of Kissinger's theory of, of order and how order works and how balance is created. For those of you who haven't read it, and I do agree with you, it's eminently worth reading. World Order argues that our world is, is confusing because there are four different versions of World Order. The European, which is the one you alluded to, which has its roots in the 17th century and the Treaty of Westphalia. An American order, uh, which has its roots in Woodrow Wilson's vision of a, a world based on law and international collective uh, security and, and institutions. But then there's also a Chinese conception of order, and now that China is uh, the equal in economic terms of the United States, that we need to take seriously. And finally, there's an Islamic conception of world order, uh, which has its most extreme exponents in Islamic State, uh, but is by no means uniquely understood by them. And Kissinger says in the book, the problem is that each of these different conceptions of order is itself in a state of flux, even of degeneration and decay. And he's especially critical of Europe in his, his chapter uh, on the, uh, the issue of European order. Now, as an historian, I'm always entertained when people talk about the Treaty of Westphalia in departments of politics. Um, and uh, and the, the chances are that anybody who refers to the Treaty of Westphalia has not read it. Uh, and, that, and that's because the Treaty of Westphalia, like so many documents in history, doesn't really say what people say it says. Uh, it would be lovely if the Treaty of Westphalia said, from now on we're going to have nation states with uh, uh, sovereignty that will pursue their own interests and uh, you're not allowed to interfere in their domestic affairs. But that's not actually what the Treaty of Westphalia says. You could say the Peace of Augsburg had a bit of that, but, but not quite. Actually, the Treaty of Westphalia turns out to be an enormously detailed uh, solution to the problem of the Thirty Years' War. Uh, with all the territorial bits and bobs that made the Thirty Years' War so complicated. So when we talk about Westphalian sovereignty, we should first look at 
the Treaty of Westphalia rather than at what people say it said. When we do that, it becomes clear that in the 17th century, people understood very well that there was no such thing as absolute sovereignty. The sovereignty is always qualified, especially in Europe, that it's extremely difficult in the world's most conflict-ridden geography, which is what Europe is, to allow states to have the kind of absolute sovereignty that many Americans still imagine they have. Uh, those of you who are interested in how Kissinger uh, has understood our recent uh, excitements can read a piece that was just published in the Wall Street Journal, a very good piece actually, arguing that now that what's done is done, there needs to be a constructive uh, way forward for both the European Union and the United Kingdom. When I began with, you know, who do I call when I want to talk to Britain, uh, I, I was partly prompted by that, that article. So yes, we must be very wary of great simplifications, what Jakob Burkhardt called uh, the terrible simplifiers. Terrible simplifiers did a lot of damage in the 20th century, as Burkhardt had, had foreseen. I think there have been some terrible simplifications in our debate about Europe, and, and one of them is the terrible simplification that there can be such a thing as absolute and untrammeled sovereignty. I don't know who's next. There, there's some people right at the back who are doing some good gesticulation, and I think one should always reward gesticulation. Uh, so, people at the back who were gesticulating, please. Thank you. Um, you clearly get the bigger patterns of history with your comments about Brexit and so on. Do you know what the great wise man of the 20th century thinks about a resurgent Russia, whether we're heading for a Cold War or even a, a Third World War? I've had uh, many conversations uh, with Henry Kissinger about this subject. In fact, I had one in Dresden just a few weeks ago. And I, I think I'm not going to give away any secrets because he's written about this, that broadly speaking, he sees the Europeans and the Americans as having misunderstood Russia historically. One of the great lines in this book, for me at least, was Kissinger's line, an early Kissinger line, that, that history is to nations or to states what character is to individuals. And if you don't know the history, you can't really know the mindset, the mental framework of your counterparty. Negotiating with President Putin is impossible if you know no Russian history. And if you just think Ukraine is another East European country to be added to the EU's collection, you're dangerously underestimating its historical importance as one of the founding territories of, of Russia itself. So I think Kissinger's position is that we failed to see the significance of Ukraine. By we, I mean the West. Because this was a mistake that was as much European as American. And that we have uh, put ourselves and Russia in an impossible position that will only be resolved if we acknowledge that Ukraine cannot become detached entirely uh, from a Russian uh, sphere of influence. It cannot become a member of the European Union. It certainly cannot become a member of NATO. My own view is somewhat less sympathetic to Putin, and I want to draw a very clear line now between what I think and what he thinks. A number of you have asked me, I suppose, to channel my inner Kissinger. Uh, but really, when you're writing a biography, whoever you're writing about, whether it's Henry Kissinger, Sigmund Warburg, or, or Nathan Rothschild, uh, you have to create a space, a uh, real space, between what you think and what they think. Because a historian ultimately is engaged in what R.G. Collingwood said was the reconstitution of past thought. That's what we really do. With all those dusty documents, what we're doing as we read them is to try to reconstitute the mental processes, the thoughts of the past, of people who are dead or who are very old. And as we're doing that, we should be juxtaposing those reconstituted thoughts with our own, not merging them, 
not confusing them, not thinking that we're actually having those thoughts ourselves. So as I've written this book, I've really been in a dialogue with him, not only literally as we've done hours and indeed days of interviews, but we've also been in intellectual dialogue on a whole series of issues, in particular, I think, on this issue. I'm probably uh, in really quite a different place from him, and in this case, a good deal less sympathetic to the Don Corleone figure who is Vladimir Putin. Is there another question at the back, or should we, should we try the middle? I've slightly been neglecting this side of the room, don't you think? And, and there's a gentleman there who's got a hand up. Can we get a mic? I know this is... We'll get to you, sir. I didn't, I didn't want to take a hot mic out of your hand. We have time for a couple more questions. Yes, sir. Thank you. You've talked a lot about uh, Henry Kissinger's policies. Could you tell us a little about him as a person, how you found him in all your interviews as a human being? Well, the book is, I suppose, an extended answer to that question. And the most important point that I've made tonight is that he's not at all what I expected. Uh, the, the image that has grown up, particularly through the writings of people like uh, Hitchens, is a deeply misleading one. Uh, there was certainly an idealist there. It remains to be seen what became of that idealist in the realm of power. I don't suppose he got out entirely with his idealism intact. Uh, but one point, perhaps it's a lighter point on which to begin to conclude, is that aside from being one of the most brilliant people I've ever met, intellectually formidable, in a way that I've rarely encountered, Kissinger's very funny. And that sense of humor is one of the keys to his great ability to disarm hostile counterparties. The tragedy is that some of Henry Kissinger's jokes, which I always liken to the jokes of the, the Marx Brothers era, you, if you were in World War II, you have a kind of Marx Brothers sense of humor. And the Marx Brothers sense of humor always consisted of, uh, in Groucho's case, exaggerating something to make it funny. So here's a classic example. After he gets made Secretary of State, the press corps ask him how they should henceforth address him. And Kissinger replies, I don't stand on ceremony. You can call me your excellency. <laughs> Which is a classic Groucho Marx kind of response. The most famous thing that Henry Kissinger has ever said, the one that you're most likely to have heard of, is that power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. But that's actually, if you see it in its original context, a joke. It's in the context of an interview with it was a disastrous interview, actually. It, it transpired with uh, Arena Falacci. And, um, and Kissinger was making fun of the fact that these starlets from Hollywood were having dinner with him. And so the point about power being the ultimate aphrodisiac was why else would they be having dinner with this slightly overweight, bespectacled German-Jewish professor? The, the one that has got him in the most trouble over the years is the one in which he says, the illegal we do immediately, the unconstitutional takes longer. <laughs> There's an entire web website dedicated to this, uh, this particular phrase. And if you're a reader of The Nation or The Guardian, then, then you read this and you think, oh, Dr. Evil, Dr. And then you go back to the original document and you realize this is a joke at the beginning of a meeting to break the ice with a bunch of Turkish diplomats. So I, I have been struck by not only the sense of humor, but also by the difficulty with which a later generation related to that sense of humor. The 1968 era student revolutionaries were not very funny people. They, were, they weren't that funny. The anti-war movement, Jane Fonda, it's really not that funny. And so there's a kind of cultural generational disconnect between Kissinger's generation. They had fought in World War II. They had seen the real thing. And the 68 is the baby boomers who are like, make love, not war, man. Just can't you just stop the war? That disconnect has been a reason, I think, for the extraordinary ups and downs of his reputation. I'll take one more question for the gentleman who had the mic ripped out his hand, Thank and you. then we'll wrap. Um, it, is yes, a, <coughs> it is a Brexit question to finish with. Um, you, you mentioned that um, Brexit for you was the division within the British elite. Could you maybe explain that a little bit more? And also, do you, 
agree with the Dutch Prime Minister that England is, and he said England is politically, monetarily and diplomatically finished. The clock here says I have seven seconds. <laughs> this is a festival that runs on a strict timetable. I may need a little bit more than seven for this. I've read so much in the last week along the lines of this is a fundamental revolt of the, the masses against the elites. And it's global. Britain is just the first, a populist wave against fill in the blank. Globalization, immigration, inequality is underway. And soon it will sweep all before it, including the Dutch Prime Minister, in March. And as I was reading all of this, I was at the same time browsing the front page of the Daily Mail, proud sponsors of this event. <laughs> I've had my... I've had interesting times at the Daily Mail, I should say. I mean, I used to write for the Daily Mail. Then I became subject matter for the Daily Mail. That's less fun. As I was reading the Daily Mail, I was reflecting on how odd it was that we should think a great revolt against the elites was underway when the ultimate meaningful consequence of the vote on Thursday the 23rd of this month seems to be that an Etonian stops becoming prime minister and is challenged for this position by a former president of the Oxford Union who today knifed in the back another former president of the Oxford Union and is running against a former, I forget was she, treasurer? Certainly she's the wife of a former president of the Oxford Union. I mean, if this is the revolt of the masses, the masses have delegated their powers to some remarkably elite people, don't you think? And that, then it hit me. I was actually writing to my old friend, Andrew Roberts. I, I dare say Andrew has appeared at this festival. He's coming tomorrow. Andrew and I have a friendship that has uh, gone back a long way. And uh, although I've been in the US and he's been here much of the time, we haven't seen one another that often. We've corresponded. And read one another's books, and I admire hugely his, his work. Indeed, I'm a minor character in his novel, The Aachen Memorandum, which, as some of you may know, prophesied the referendum uh, on British membership of the EU and got the result exactly right. I have had my Eurosceptic moments over the years. I was profoundly hostile uh, to the creation of a monetary union, and I've written more articles critical of the EU than I've written articles saying how great it is. But Andrew and I ended up on opposite sides of this great national debate. I was on the Remain side, he was on the Leave side. And I, I asked him, do you think this is Suez or Munich? Are we all going to be fundamentally changed by this? And will the Remainers never quite forgive the Leavers? I won't tell you his answer. Ask him tomorrow. I will tell you that I think, I think it has created a rift. I think it has created a rift. And although it may not quite seem right now like Munich or Suez, that's because the recession hasn't happened yet. And nor has Brexit. Brexit hasn't happened. It won't happen for probably two years. What's happened is what was always intended to happen, yet another struggle for the leadership of the Conservative Party. That's the plot. Brexit is a subplot. And I believe that when it becomes apparent just how big a shock to the UK economy this has delivered, that'll take months, there will be a great deal of remorse on the part of those people who, in my view, glibly and frivolously opted to do this. And that's why, ultimately, there will be, I think there will be bitterness. You asked about how I view this as a Scotsman. At least that was the implication of your question. I was against Scotland's leaving the UK. And I campaigned hard against it. I campaigned hard to keep the United Kingdom intact. But my conception of the United Kingdom was as an integral part of the EU. And what troubles me most perhaps more even than the economic consequences, is that the Brexit vote has reopened 
the can of worms that is Scottish independence. No politician was better prepared for this, it seemed to me, on the morning after, than Nicola Sturgeon. She was a lot better prepared than Boris, wasn't she? So if we ultimately end up not only with Brexit, with the UK exiting the EU, but uh, with something more severe, the breakup of the United Kingdom, then I think there will be reasons for bitterness, and I shall certainly feel some. On that somber note, thank you all very much indeed for your attention. <laughs>